John chapter 19, verse 28, on page 1088. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath, because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Thank you very much, Dan, for reading for us. If, if you're not with us uh, regularly Sunday by Sunday, you uh, may not know that we have uh, been spending this year working our way through the whole of John's account of the life of Jesus. Uh, started back in September, um, and as you will now see, uh, arriving at the, um, at the tail end, the, the final climactic events uh, of John's account. Um, and it's a funny thing to think, isn't it, that... Um, these events that have come to be so utterly central uh, to the Christian faith were in the first century some of the biggest barriers to people coming to believe. Um, The um, letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth kind of captures that, um, where uh, he points out that um, to to Jews, the cross was was a stumbling block. Um, and uh, uh, to Gentiles, to people who weren't Jews, it was just complete folly. Um, why? Because um, uh, in Jewish understanding, if you could throw that verse up on the screen so people can see it, in, in Jewish uh, thinking, to, to die on a cross was to die under the curse of God. Um, so how could this man possibly be a Messiah, a man worth following, when he's died under the curse of God? Um, and to citizens of the Roman Empire, power, um, status was all important. Uh, what a nonsense uh, to commit yourself to somebody who dies humiliated, shamed, uh, in such utter weakness uh, as a man dying crucified on a cross. 
And yet, here we are, 2,000 years later, um, studying, reading, thinking about this account uh, of the way that Jesus died. And here we are, 2,000 years later, with this message uh, having spread to every corner uh, of our globe. Um, So we would do well, wouldn't we, uh, to work out what it is that is so important, why it is that Christians have placed the cross at the very center uh, of their believing and their thinking, Um, whether we're looking at this for the the hundredth time or the very first time, uh, to be utterly clear uh, what it is uh, that is happening there. I'm going to do that um, uh, sort of framework, if you like, of of just three phrases. Two spoken by Jesus, uh, I am thirsty, it is finished, uh, and one phrase uh, given to us uh, by the Apostle uh, John himself in his account. So first, um, I am thirsty. There's so much that is very ordinary, if I can put it like that, about Jesus dying. Uh, There came a moment when Jesus took his very last breath. Uh, There was a final beat of Jesus' heart. uh, And then physical life was extinguished. Uh, But even if the form of his death, or the, 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 the fact of his death, uh, was ordinary. Uh, there's so much of it that is extraordinary. Uh, one of the things we pick out is, is this business of thirst. Now, again, at one level, Jesus simply was um, excruciatingly thirsty. Uh, and we take our word excruciatingly from the idea of crucifixion. The most terrible thirst, uh, scourged, loss of blood, Um, contributing to his dehydration. Uh, Then the beating sun, uh, profuse sweating from the agony uh, of the nails uh, through hands and feet. Jesus was profoundly dehydrated. And so when he croaks through parched lips, I am thirsty, he means what he says. But as we have seen um, in... In John's account, uh, again and again, um, John is is, is such a clever writer, um, and he is weaving multiple layers of meaning um, into his gospel account. And so it is here. Um, Because at one level, there is something sort of deeply ironic uh, that Jesus should declare, I am thirsty. Because you remember all of the many occasions uh, during... Um, his life up to this point, when he has been declaring to people how he is the provider um, of living water. You remember back in John chapter 4, meeting the woman at the well, and he says to her, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Uh, And then just a little while later on, at a a feast in Jerusalem, uh, Jesus stands up in a loud voice, declares, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water uh, will flow out uh, from them. And and those kind of bold pronouncements just look a little bit lame now, don't they? As pinned to a cross... He can't even satisfy his own thirst, never mind anyone else's. But of course, there's much more going on here 
and we press down a little bit further. I dig a little further under the surface to try and make sense uh, of what is actually being said. Because, you see, we are thirsty people, you and I. We, we thirst for all sorts of things, don't we? we? We thirst after joy. We thirst after success. We uh, thirst after relationships. We thirst after love. Uh, and in all sorts of ways, uh, that is entirely appropriate. Th- those are good things. Uh, great gifts from God to enjoy. Relationships and love and joy. Happiness. Nothing wrong with any of those. But according to the Bible, the way in which we pursue them, the way in which we thirst after them, has woven into its very heart a mistaken path, a mistaken way of chasing after these things. And our pursuit leads us astray. Uh, We chase after relationships. We chase after love. We desperately pursue the right appearance the right education. And then with doing so, we're, we're sort of thirsting after these things with, with a heart that is, that is kind of persuaded that if we can just get this stuff, then we'll finally be satisfied. That it is the pursuit of these things that, that really will sort out our sense of dissatisfaction in life. And, and therein lies our error. Not that these aren't good things, but that instead of, as it were, receiving them as gifts from God, we pursue them as substitutes for God. We think in them we will find the reason for living, the thing truly worth having, the thing that if we will just possess it will make life okay. Only God tells us that in so doing we have become uh, like men and women who are drinking from cracked cisterns. Famous verse back in Jeremiah. My people have committed two sins, God says through the prophet Jeremiah. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Or to, or to change the analogy, um, you might imagine it's almost as if we are, we're, like a, we're like a person sat in a boat um, with, uh, in the midst of the ocean, surrounded by water, uh, desperately drinking from the salt water around us, convinced that that will satisfy our thirst, when all the time, because it's salt water, it is just making us thirstier, and thirstier, and thirstier. The Christian writer C.S. Lewis once defined heaven as the place where we say to God, thy will be done. And he defined hell as the place where God says to us, your will be done. You have what you thirst after. I'll give it to you. What it is that you want, I will let you have it. It's a bit like that idea in Romans 1, where we read that God gives us over. So the thing that we want, God gives us it. 
and in hell we discover that what we thought will satisfy actually just produces greater and greater and greater thirst because it is not God. Far from being a delight, it is a torture. Just like drinking the sea water, it contributes to our thirst instead of slaking it. Till eventually, everything in us is crying out for relief. Do you remember that, the, the parable that Jesus tells of the rich man and Lazarus? Um, uh, you, you remember it's a, sort of a, it's a parable with a reversal in, like so many parables. Uh, and here the reversal is uh, between um, Lazarus, who had been a, a beggar, um, destitute in life, uh, but in eternity um, is in glory uh, with Abraham, uh, knowing rest and peace and comfort. Whereas the rich man who's known great comforts Uh, at a material level, uh, is in agony, in hell, in eternity. Um, And you remember how it is um, that uh, the rich man uh, asks if Lazarus might might just be allowed to, to dip his finger in the water and come and cool his tongue uh, with his finger because the rich man says, I am in agony in the fire. Do you see and understand what is happening uh, on the cross? On the cross, Jesus is in agony in the fire. Jesus is desperate at a spiritual level to have somebody dip their finger in the water and slake his thirst. Why? Well, because right through his life, if I can put it like this, Jesus' his meat and drink was to do the will of God. That, that's what he said. He said, he said um, my food is to do the will of my Father in heaven. Uh, and therefore, he was always satisfied, never thirsty, because he lived alone of any person that's ever lived. He lived rightly seeking after God satisfying his thirst rightly in God his Father in heaven by obeying him. But here on the cross, Jesus experiences the agony of thirst at a spiritual level because God is no longer there. His Father, it's the equivalent. You remember in some of the other accounts, we get that cry of, of desperation from Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, why, Father in heaven, are you no longer accessible to me? Well, this is John's equivalent cry. I am thirsty. Thirsty because he is experiencing the thirst that is ours. It's striking, isn't it, that so many of the agonies of the cross, um, in the the midst of the scourging, uh, the beating that he takes, the the thorns pressed into his scalp, the nails driven through hands and feet, we, we get no words of Jesus complaining about those pains. Nowhere do we hear 
uh, his cry of pain in relation to those. Only here, only in relation to this thirst. Because John wants us to see that in this terrible, terrible moment, cut off from his Father in heaven, he feels the thirst that ought to be ours. And here too a reversal takes place. Jesus thirsts on the cross so that you and I in eternity will never need to. Because the only way that Jesus can become the source of of living water is by experiencing this terrible spiritual thirst himself. So first, I am thirsty. And let's now see how the narrative continues. Uh, Because hearing the words uh, that Jesus speaks, uh, verse 29, the soldiers offer Jesus a drink. Tiny gesture of compassion from them. Maybe they have this this bucket, this bottle uh, of cheap uh, wine vinegar. Uh, uh, And they, they, they dip a sponge in it because uh, what good's a cup to, to a man with his hands pinned? Uh, so they lift up the sponge soaked in this cheap wine and press it to Jesus' lips so that he can uh, suck on it, uh, at least to moisten his lips, maybe one swallow for his parched throat. But it seems that that's enough. That's all he wants. Because if it was okay to croak, I thirst, Jesus didn't want these next words, I think, to be croaked. He wanted these words to be loud and clear. He wanted every ounce of energy that he had left in his dying body to be channeled into this great next proclamation. It is finished. Not I am finished, not I'm done, but it is done. It is finished. The great work completed, the work that he had come to do, the work that he was determined to see through, completed on the cross as he dies. You had to stop and thought, how many people tried to stop Jesus getting to this point? You ever reflected on that? I was listening to a talk where, where somebody did that. I found it very striking. You, you could wind right back to the very beginning of his life. Herod tried to kill him as a baby. Stop him getting to the cross, wouldn't it? If he died then. The devil tried to stop him. Tempted him down a different route. You know, to take this route to glory, uh, which would have diverted him from the cross. Peter, remember when Jesus declares what he's come to do, how he'll die, be betrayed, die on a cross. Peter says, no, 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 Lord. No, not that. Or, or when they set off for Jerusalem um, earlier in John's Gospel, and the disciples say, when you last went to Jerusalem, they tried to kill you there. Well, you, you don't go there again. And even in the very last hours, the thieves, either side of him, Save yourself and us, they say to him. 
And of course, be clear, understand he could have done that. That the man who, with a word, could say, be still and a storm ceases, uh, he has the power, he has the capacity, even up to the very last moment, to choose to remove himself from the cross. Jesus wasn't caught up in some political events that, that overrode him and he was powerless in the midst of it. No, no, at every point he was choosing. At every point he could have diverted from this path and chose not to. Chose to see it through. Chose to stay with it. Chose to live with the agony until he could finally say, it is finished. I have done it. One word completed. Does that catch you? Does that catch each of us to realize that he made this choice for you? That he made this determination to see it through to the cross, uh, to experience the agony of this thirst? Did it for you, chose to do it for you. It's quite something, isn't it, to, to consider that idea of someone choosing death. I don't know if you've, like me, um, been occasionally um, following the news reports of the coroner's inquest into the deaths of those who died on London Bridge with the terrorist outrage. Uh, Every now and again, I I find myself caught by a headline um, and just read a little bit. Uh, And I, I can't really remember the details, and I haven't gone back to check, but I think I remember it clearly a few weeks ago, uh, the report of... Uh, a nurse who had been in a restaurant uh, there alongside London Bridge uh, eating with friends as the events began to unfold. And I think perhaps they could actually see through the window uh, the people who had been stabbed, uh, heard their cries. Uh, And this woman stood up and said, I have to go to them. That's what I'm trained for. I have to go to them. And she went. She never came back. She became one more victim of the terrorists' knives. It's quite something, isn't it, to, to choose to place yourself in danger, to choose out of care for another to risk your life, to give your life. She had a moment, just a moment, She heard the cries, she took a decision, she went. Jesus had all of eternity to anticipate this moment, knowing what it would cost him, knowing that this was his father's plan, that it would involve the agony of the spiritual thirst of the cross. He had all of eternity to anticipate that, and he chose, he chose to go and see it through till it was finished for you and for me. I am thirsty. Uh, It is finished. And these things that we might believe. Uh, We're not far through the narrative. See how it continues there in verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation. And the next day was to be a special Sabbath. 
Because the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. It's Passover time. Uh, and the, the Sabbath of um, the Passover week is clearly a special Sabbath, or one of the most special Sabbaths. I don't know. It would equate, I guess, to, to our Christmas Day. And, and who wants sort of dying bodies hanging around on crosses uh, when you're having a celebratory feast? You don't want them ruining your Christmas. Sort of ugly on Passover. So, so let's get rid of them. Uh, and the way to speed up the death of a crucified man is to break his legs. Uh, it's thought that the way in which you, you die from crucifixion is the gradual inability to go on breathing. You can imagine it, sort of stretched, pinned out on a cross like that. Uh, the stained glass actually captures it quite well. You can imagine how hard it is, splayed like that, with your rib cage dragged down to, to pull air into your lungs. But one of the ways that you could help yourself was to push up on your feet, just to open up your chest cavity a bit, grab another breath. But not if your legs were broken. That'd speed things up. And so they take the iron mallet and smash the shin bones. Can't push yourself up anymore. But how, how was it that they came to Jesus uh, and the soldier says, hey, this one's already dead. And the others say, you sure? And he says, yeah, yeah, yeah he's already dead, look. And slices a spear into his side. No movement. He's dead already just a flow of blood and water from his side. Is that how it went? Maybe. What is clear is that John is disproportionately animated by this detail, by the detail of the legs not being broken, by the detail of the, the spear piercing the side. Somehow gets uh, very excited, very animated uh, about this particular uh, fine grain of what took place. And soon it becomes clear why. And he sees it that, that the man who saw it, John says, he's given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows he tells the truth, and he testifies. He's really excited by this. Why? Because John has come to see that this detail is in direct fulfillment anticipations centuries earlier of the way in which the Messiah would die. The first is the prediction uh, that no bone would be broken. Probably uh, what John has in mind uh, is this verse from uh, the Passover narrative itself uh, back in Exodus chapter 12. Um, do, do, you remember maybe um, in your head the the events of the Passover. It was the time when the, the, the Jewish people were slaves in Egypt uh, and Pharaoh is commanded to let the people go, but he won't let the people go. And because of his stubbornness, because of his refusal, um, plagues come upon Egypt uh, to try and force Pharaoh's hand. 
plague after plague after plague, until the final climactic and terrible plague, which is the death of a firstborn in every home through Egypt. But there is a way out. There is a way of avoiding the death of the firstborn, and that is by the sacrifice of a Passover lamb. You kill the lamb instead, and you daub the blood uh, on the doorpost of your home. And then when God comes in his terrible moment of judgment, he sees the blood, and he passes by that house, passes over, so that no firstborn son dies in that particular home. But the, the lamb that they are to kill is to be a perfect lamb, without blemish. Uh, and therefore, when they eat it in, in the years to come, when they remember the Passover, in the Passover feast, um, this is the instruction. It must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. Because the Passover lamb you eat must be perfect just as Jesus needs to be perfect. See, no good Jesus not being perfect, because if Jesus isn't perfect, then he's got his own sin to die for on the cross. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. For all these centuries, a yearly reminder of the terrible Passover events. But it was all ever foreshadowing. It was all ever anticipation. It was all ever a reminder over and over and over again that there needed to be a true Passover lamb, not an animal, but God himself come in human flesh to take our place in judgment on the cross. Don't break any of his bones. Uh, And then secondly, a, a verse from Zechariah, who had predicted a time when God's people would look back on the one that they had pierced and terribly, in in great anguish, realize what it is that they had done. Uh, And this verse is picked up in the book of Revelation uh, in the end times with with exactly this sense as they realized that they rejected their own Messiah, as they took him to judgment. They'll look on me, God says through the prophet Zechariah, the one that they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Fulfillment is all over the place here. Even Jesus' declaration, I thirst, John tells us, is in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Probably this verse in Psalm 69, where Um, The psalmist writes about being um, persecuted and pursued and says of his enemies, they put gall in my food and they gave me vinegar uh, for my thirst. All of these things happened, John tells us. Not only so that the scripture might be fulfilled, but also, verse 35, so that you and I might believe. And I can't, think of coming to the end of our reflections on this account without asking the obvious question. Do you? Do you believe? It's quite possible, isn't it, to to look at this account um, and as it were say to yourself, I, I believe this happened. 
You go further and you can say, yeah, I, I believe that Jesus died as a sacrifice for my sin. You go further and say, yes, I, I believe that through Jesus' death on the cross, uh, it is possible for a person to come back into relationship with God through this forgiveness. Possible to believe all of that and still need to hear the question from John. Do you believe? Um, I was doing the maths and, uh, and was slightly, slightly astonished to, to realize that um, it is now uh, 38 years plus um, since as a first-year medical student um, I took a decision to believe. Um, my, my experience of that time, which you know, remains very vivid and very clear in my mind, is that over the months leading up to that, I had come to believe that these events took place. I had come to believe that this was a sacrifice for sin. I had come uh, to believe that it gave a person the possibility of coming back into relationship with God. But I didn't believe. In other words, I hadn't made this my own. I'd taken no decision of the will to say, I pledge myself to Christ. I take this salvation to be my own. And I commit myself to this Jesus as my Lord. So that when somebody had the courage to say to me, do you actually want to become a Christian? It's all very well coming along to talks and listening to stuff. Do you want to become a Christian? I realized there was still a decision of the will and the heart to make. It could be that there is someone this morning in exactly that place. Be surprised if there wasn't. Somebody who has understood these things, but hasn't yet taken a decision of the will to say, this is for me. I will commit myself to this Christ, to follow him for the rest of my life and into eternity, because by grace I believe he will save me. And I want to take that salvation to be my own. I would love to, to invite you to take that step this morning. Uh, in a sense, that's exactly what Rachel was flagging up earlier on, that the first of those four foundations belong. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about belonging to Christ, and he would call us into the body that he has established here on earth, to belong. It begins with this decision, Christ is for me, and I am for Christ. And I'm going to lead us in a prayer that would express that kind of decision uh, this very morning. Uh, and maybe in your heart you want to echo that quietly and take this decision. be a great thing to do. And for others, you know that you've taken this decision already. But maybe it's all got a little bit hazy, a bit blurry, the clarity of your commitment to Christ, the clarity in your head of just what it is he's done for you uh, isn't as sharp as it ought to be. Uh, and maybe for you this would be a good morning uh, to refocus, uh, to remember who saved you, how he saved you, and what it means to be somebody committed to his cause.
Let me lead us uh, in a prayer. I'll leave a moment of quiet first so that those who perhaps uh, are aware of God's call on their life, not mine, but God's call on their life, uh, to take a decision for him this morning, can have a moment of quiet to do that. Our gracious Father, as we gaze uh, in our mind's eyes at the cross this morning, uh, we do admit to you that we are thirsty people spiritually because we look to all sorts of false places to satisfy our thirst instead of being those who look to you Uh, And we are wrong uh, to do that. How we thank you that on the cross, Jesus died in our place. He became thirsty in our place, spiritually thirsty, as he came under your judgment. And he did this so that we could become those who can know streams of living water in our lives, Uh, him thirsty, so that our thirst might finally be dealt with. And Father God, we we commit ourselves, uh, perhaps for the very first time, or we commit ourselves afresh uh, to the Lord Jesus knowing him to be the only one who can save in this way, the only one who can restore us to you. We claim his salvation and we commit ourselves to him as Lord of our lives. And we do it for your greater glory. In Christ's name, amen.